0: Hello and welcome to SIG Transit, Gloria, on WNYU 89.1 FM. I'm Anna. I'm Sabina. And today we are going to be talking about when Brooklyn was queer, specifically the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So we had Hugh Ryan, author of When Brooklyn Was Queer. We had him in the studio to talk about his new book, An Exhibition at Bobst. My name is Hugh Ryan. I'm a writer and a curator and the author of When Brooklyn Was Queer, the first ever queer history of New York City's most populous borough. So today we'll be talking about the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Which is uh, an incredibly exciting site for a lot of reasons, but the reason I wanted to talk about it with y'all is in terms of my history of Brooklyn, What I discovered when I started looking at sort of the queer stories in Brooklyn and the queer history was that it's really connected to the waterfront. Uh, The waterfront is some of the oldest parts of Brooklyn, and it's also where some of the best jobs queer people could have were centered. And the Navy Yard, for about as long as the Brooklyn waterfront is really important commercially and militarily, the Navy Yard is there. It was founded, I believe, in 1801, although the first building wasn't completed until 1806. It was one of the first five naval yards built in the country. President John Adams decided that we should have this kind of naval fleet and these uh, naval bases. And it quickly became the most important in many ways. By the 1830s, a thing called the Naval Lyceum is founded there, which becomes the Naval Academy. So it's where all of these really important uh, military leaders Come from, you get all this important shipbuilding. You get all this advances in technology, advances in, in strange things that we don't think about, but like medicine. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, you know the pharmaceutical company, it's founded by a doctor named I think. E.M. Squibb. He's a naval doctor at the Navy Yard, and he's making all these advances in in surgery. He's a surgeon, and he realizes that he can patent some of them. And then Squibb Pharmaceuticals becomes hugely important, and eventually it sort of reconnects to queer history because it produces a lot of important AIDS drugs. And all this stuff comes out of the Navy Yard. And that's just in the 19th century. By the 20th century, you get the mobilizations around World War One and World War Two, which bring in huge numbers of people all throughout the country to the Navy Yard. At one point during World War Two, there's as many as like 75,000 people working in the Navy Yard. And it's a, only a couple hundred acres. It's, it's a small area, right? But it's crucially important. And then particularly, as the war goes on, and they need more people in manual positions, and they start hiring women, the Brooklyn Navy Yard becomes a really important source of employment for women. It's it's not as big numerically as the numbers that are hired at other yards throughout the country, but in terms of the image of women workers, that kind of Rosie the Riveter image, Brooklyn's really important. And all of that is happening for this like 100 and 60-year period basically from 1806 to 1966 that's when the navy yard finally closes down Uh, after the war they let go of a lot of workers The whole waterfront is changing in a lot of ways, particularly shipping is changing. And the Brooklyn Navy Yard is built, and all of Brooklyn's waterfront really is built to handle smaller ships, not the big ships that come in, container shipping in the 1950s. And so by 1966, the Navy Yard really is not important anymore. It's, It's derelict, it's almost abandoned, and it gets shut down entirely. And now it's having this resurgence, of course. But that's the arc of my book is neatly contained within the arc of the Navy Yard. Before World War II, it was very looked down upon for a woman to work outside of the home. It was usually viewed as either something that was um, embarrassing, that she should try to hide, or temporary, something that she did only until she got married or for a short period, maybe while her family was experiencing distress. Women were paid less for the same jobs. They were excluded from most jobs. Uh, The conditions that they worked under were often very bad, abusive, um, dangerous, They, in these positions, these manual positions, they didn't even have um, protective gear. The necessary protective gear wasn't made for women. So they had to retrofit and kind of create their own from men's gear. That's why they were wearing trousers. Uh, And so war always has a big effect on that. It's, It's not a coincidence. The first time the American census ever asks about women's employment outside the home is immediate, the first census after the civil war because so many women had to go to work. And now, we know that women of color have always worked in this country, whether paid or not, recognized or not. We know that immigrant women, we know that working class women, they have always worked. But we haven't wanted to look at that, and we certainly have not celebrated it until World War II. That was the moment where because so many quote-unquote good women, you know, white women of a certain class, of a certain level of education, who were still expecting to get married, who displayed at least a certain amount of femininity, that was the moment where they really are entering the labor force and are embraced by the labor force. And, and that creates these ripple changes that are really important for all women everywhere, even though only a certain number and a small select portion of women really had those jobs. There's all these statistics too that get done around the war showing that while most women at the start of the war did not want to work outside of the home, that they thought it themselves that it was not a great thing, by the end of the war, something like, 70% of women who are working don't want to go back to being unemployed. They want to work. They want to have this public life. And I think that's a real change in their own self-conception that I think is really interesting. Immediately after World War II ends, the women who are hired by the Navy Yard and by the other civilian ship-related and war-related uh, places are fired Uh, there's a woman named Rusty Brown. She's a machinist and eventually a drag king who starts off, uh, she's from Manhattan, but she gets trained by the Navy out in the Pacific Coast to be a welder right at the start of World War II. And she ends up at the Navy Yard for most of the war. And in this memoir that she wrote called Always Me, she says that on the day the Japanese surrendered in August of 1945, all the women in the yard were told they had two weeks and then their jobs were done that was it. There was no severance pay. It wasn't like the GIs coming back from the war who got the GI Bill to help them get back on their feet. These women who had for years now done this work, who had built their lives around these jobs, were just summarily fired. And they were expected to get married, have kids, return back to being this like paradigm of femininity. You know, this is when Donna April or, uh, Donna Reed comes in and it's all about, you know, getting back into the kitchen. So that's the first wave of people to really get hurt by this what is eventually going to be the closing of the Navy Yard. Those jobs that disappear for women, particularly butch women, particularly lesbians, but women in general who wanted to work particularly in manual labor jobs. My favorite thing about the Navy Yard portion of this book in terms of archiving is I, I looked at all kinds of archives all around the country. You know, For one set of records for the Navy Yard I followed this sailor named Christian Bill Miller and I found some records of him out in LA at a place called the One Archives. I found some records of him at Yale, at the Beinecke Library. I saw, found some records of him in Indiana. Like they were all over the country. You could see the wide world that he was connected to it. And so that was incredible in a certain way. But I was looking at a lot of traditional archives. When it came to finding the queer women who worked at the Navy Yard, it was much less of a traditional archive that I ended up working off of it was a lot more talking to people and getting things sort of organically particularly to find Rusty Brown's story I found a small essay that she had written in a book published in the 1980s uh, called long time passing the lives of older lesbians which is like a really depressing title very 1980s and the, her essay was incredible but it had very little information and I, I couldn't find out much about her and then I found an oral history done with her around the same time out in San Francisco at the GLBT Historical Society. And so those two documents kind of gave me her life story. They were completely disconnected and it took years to find the second one. And that started to uh, really tell the story of one particular woman and what her life was like. I was never able to find a photo of her or any images of when she worked there, what it looked like and what her work was like. Instead, I asked at the Navy Yard over and over again, I said, if anything ever comes up, please, I want everyone to know what my project is, because a lot of it went through word of mouth. And one day I got an email from the woman who at the time was the head of the Navy Yard, Building 92, and she said, a man came in the other day and he told me that his aunt was the first woman hired by the Brooklyn Navy Yard to do manual labor during World War II. It turned out not to be true. They had no records of her. They couldn't figure out anything. It turns out she was actually hired by the Todd Shipyards as the first woman to do manual labor during World War II. Her name was Anne Moses. She was one of 18 children. She was the daughter of a Romanian immigrant tinsmith named Moisha Moisha. She was a lesbian her entire life. She had wanted to learn his trade. He taught her how to weld jewelry. And so when they had this call for women in worker positions she kind of lied and said she knew how to do welding and so they hired her on the spot and she became this first woman hired at the todd shipyards and he is trying to find out more information about her, her her uncle when he came to brooklyn because he had inherited her scrapbook and her scrapbook is this incredible document for I would say, looks like about the course of 40 years. She collected photos of herself, her family, and the women she was close to. And as far back as 1928, these women are seen proposing to each other, spanking each other, being sort of sexual with each other. You can track the change in their gender presentations in these photos. They go from kind of androgynous femme in the 1920s to full on butch in the early 60s with these sweater vests and trousers and short hair. And it's this visual record that I had never seen before. And, and there's no, unfortunately, uh, written record to go along with it. But I was able to take that record and then Rusty Brown's written record and sort of use the two to draw some ideas about what it was like for women who worked at the Navy Yard. But it was a, a very organic uh archive of individuals, not one set location that I could go to for this information. And and that's how so much of this book was developed. It was just one person telling me a story, another person opening their home to me, a third person saying, you know what? My grandmother has this thing. I should show it to you. And that was kind of beautiful. It was a a very interesting, fun, slow process (laughs) where you find queer history. The oldest queer history is often where there are jobs that queer people can have these jobs are often low-paying, low-skilled, dangerous, illegal, temporary, but they pay and and they pay in a way where you can live separate from your family, separate perhaps from the community that raised you where there might be a lot of questions asked or you might already be known in certain ways and that is what makes it possible for so many of these people to lead queer lives and to build the sort of queer density that historians need to find them because of course queer people are everywhere at all times, in every location. But urban density is what makes it possible to find these sort of budding queer worlds. And the Navy Yard provided that for women in huge numbers and in organized ways. The great thing about the government doing something like this is they produce reams of paper, reports, and records, and that's the stuff that allows a historian to find people and to find the kind of density you need. Hugh Ryan actually explored further the idea of the queer waterfront uh, at the Brooklyn Historical Society, and you can go see it. Go check it out, if you want, if you can. <laughs> you can, if, if you would like to. Is this Weinstein Hall? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you know what happened here in 1970? No. Okay, so this is like a random, fascinating little tidbit that will be at the show at Bobst, which opens on, uh, well, I was going to say Thursday, but this will last Thursday when this comes out. Um, in 1970, there were a series of dances planned by nyu's first lgbt organization and some gay liberation organizations in the neighborhood they had been planning dances around the city they were getting canceled they tried to do one at town hall town hall wouldn't let them so they planned four dances here two in the summer one during orientation and one that would have been during the school year the first two went off fine and the third one they tried to cancel it but they let it happen and the fourth one they actually canceled the administration And there was a takeover of Weinstein Hall. Gay groups all around the city took over the building, had to be dragged out by the cops. It went on for days. While it was happening, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson were here in the basement at Weinstein Hall. And Sylvia apparently turned to Marsha and said, we should start an organization. And they started Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries here in Weinstein Hall in the basement in like August Something of 1970, and I I love to think about that. I did not know that at all. That changes everything. (laughs) (laughs) absolutely everything. We are sitting in queer history. We are both so awkward. It is like we're so bad. It's just like honestly, like this is amazing. This (laughs) is why my mom thinks we talk the same. Is because we have this. You know, we're just this way. I also think that our voices are on the same frequency. Like I I think they're both equally as high. Sometimes. Yeah. You know it's okay. <laughs> we are who we are. <laughs> I'm with that. I'm with that. You mm-hmm. are you, and you are you, Sabina. Uh, and Thanks. Y- and you are listening <laughs> to Saint Gloria on WNYU 89.1 FM. I'm Anna. I'm Sabina. Good, Good night. night. Oh God, <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> you okay, Anna? <clears throat> yes. Like a sick affair, like an idiot. This is my new.